they sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demons into solitary places. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs were feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured, and then all of the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over the town how much Jesus had done for him. Well, good morning, BCC. It's uh, great to see uh, so many of you in the building. I've said hi to a few people whom, for whom this Sunday is their first day back. A really, really warm, warm welcome to you. And of course, a really great welcome to all of you guys on our live streams, uh, on Facebook, on YouTube. Just great to have you here. Uh, we're continuing in our summer series uh, this morning uh, called Encounters with Jesus. And we're looking at a time from uh, Luke chapter 8, as uh, Shweta uh, read for us there, when Jesus healed a man from a demon, or from many demons, in fact. Uh, so that's going to be there on your YouVersion Bible app. If you want to access the link to that, uh, you can jump into the YouTube description or the Facebook description and click the link and you can go there. Um, I'd encourage you to follow along that in the YouVersion Bible app and make your notes. Um, but first, I'd like to open with a little bit of a story from my own history. Uh, back in about 1994, uh, I entered into a bit of a period of depression in my life. Um, and it lasted about 18 months, and it got quite serious. It was quite a, quite a difficult season in my life. Um, and after a lot of struggle, I decided that I needed to go and see a counsellor. And it was a real difficulty to do that, to admit that I needed some help and I needed to talk, but I did. And I went and saw this counsellor, and she, I knew from the first session that I had with this lady that she was going to help me, and that it was going to be a really helpful uh, set of times with her and she basically dragged me out of a very dark place and uh, over about eight sessions we had some really honest conversations and uh, she helped to steer me out of a, a season of serious depression um, and gradually and slowly I started to 
feel better. I started to get my life back on track. Um, if I can maybe explain what the feeling was like uh, in, the, in the depths of the, of the depression, it was a bit like kind of getting to the very end of yourself and trying to feel with your foot if there's anything firm to stand on and then realizing that what you're putting your foot on is paper thin and underneath there's just nothing and you could fall and it's black and it's not a nice feeling at all and the only thing keeping you there is the sense that people around you would be really disappointed if you disappeared that is not a nice place to be and I was there for a good while and now this lady was very very skilled she helped me turn a corner and I'm glad to say that I've never felt quite so broken as that since that time and she has steered me and led me out of this difficult uh, situation uh, really really well and led me on uh, to a, a better footing now uh, I became a Christian about six years later and I started to look back on that time with maybe slightly different perspective, if you like, but it, it was a profoundly healing turnaround for me. Now, towards the end of my sessions with her, I got to about the eighth session or so, and I really admired her skill and her insight. And I said to her in this final session, I said, has there been anybody, I was thanking her for helping me, has there, and I said to her, has there anybody, any, ever been anybody that you've been unable to help? And she said, yeah, there was... Sadly, there was one time where she had somebody who came for an initial session, and from the description they gave and the interaction they had, she drew the conclusion that this person was too deeply fractured for her to assist. Too far gone. Too, too broken. And she said it made her very sad because she wasn't able to help this person. She had to just have the one session and say, I don't think my skill can meet your situation. And I've often thought about who that person might have been. I've often thought, I hope that person, since becoming a Christian, I hope that that person could meet with Jesus and become a follower of Jesus uh, and to have an encounter with him. And I often wonder about what happened to them. And I hope that the outcome was a good one. I want to open with that story um, because I think it sets a scene for what happens in this story from Luke chapter 8. Today's message is kind of part of a, a sequence of messages which is aiming to talk about what happens when Jesus meets with somebody, how does it affect them, and then how many, how, what sort of lessons are there out of that interaction or encounter for us that we can take away that can help us. Now, you'll you remember from last week, Paula did a, a fantastic job of speaking to us on the calming of the storm from Mark chapter 4. What a great message that was. Uh, really encouraged us. Thank you so much, Paula. Um, and what you notice from the way that the sequence of these stories connect is that you, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this story doesn't appear in John, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke line up this story of the, of the calming of the physical storm and then they go straight into this story of the healing of the man with the demons. And what they're basically saying is Jesus can, can heal a physical storm and he can heal a spiritual storm. In other words, what they're saying is there is nothing that Jesus can't sort out and can't heal. And when you read the stories in the sequence, you realize that that is the message that those gospel writers are trying to bring across to us. That this is the calming of a spiritual storm of a large magnitude, and it compares with the physical storm that Jesus has just calmed uh, a few verses earlier. Now, I want to say to you, I think this story in the Bible is one of huge drama, and it's full of unexpected outcomes. 
When you read it, I mean, I don't know, it's so hard sometimes when you've read the Bible lots to go back to the original freshness of the story, but if you can imagine just reading this story for the first time, you're going, what? All the way through, there's just so much incredible stuff going on. You know, we would shudder to even meet a man like this man from the Gerasenes for ourselves. Uh, you, I don't know if you've ever been out in the town and you just get this sense from a person that they, you need to stay away from them and you kind of go on the other side of the road and this man was like that but to the nth degree. We're horrified to read that it's possible for a human being to even go this far beyond help in this way. How could that happen? What was his backstory? What choices did he make that got him to that place? How did people treat him to set him up to be like this? If you ever thought that spiritual or demonic evil did not exist, then this story completely blows that out of the water. Uh, you know, and, and in addition to that, we can't even kind of quite take in the possibility that so many demonic entities can be housed in a single person. You know, one possession seems bad enough, let alone multiple occupancy. Now, these demons called themselves legion, or in some translations you get the word mob. And they were a multiple group. Now, a legion in uh, Roman understanding was around 3,000 to 6,000 soldiers. So you get the idea that this is a lot of people. And they are malevolent. They are bad. They are strong. They're a force to be reckoned with. We also hear from the story that the man has a huge, unnatural, physical, demonic strength. It's enormous. He's got the capacity to break iron with his own flesh. Now, I mean, I try and pump iron sometimes, but I would never dream of trying to break my own weights. This guy can take a shackle and smash it with his own strength, except it's not his own strength, it's a demonic power that's coming through him. That's pretty eye-opening. When's the last time anyone in here smashed an iron bar with just their bare flesh? Nobody. I can't see anyone doing that. Jordan tried to say that he did in the first service, but we, we put him down. We said, no, that's not possible. This strength is also something that can transfer and it makes a a large herd of pigs charge down a hill and and into the water. And that itself begs all sorts of kind of mysterious theological questions, or it does to me anyway. Like, can, can animals carry a demonic spirit? Like, when I was in Bible college, we never studied that, that module. Um, and yet it seems to be here. Um, uh, the, were the demons uh, drowned uh, when they went with the pigs and the pigs got drowned? And was that their choice to choose that ending rather than going into the abyss that Jesus threatened them to send them to? Like, could they choose that and get out of their torment? Or did they drown the pigs and then whistle up through the water and go off into the desert in search of other victims? I mean... The mind boggles. What is going on here? And then the local people, they all get angry and annoyed because not, because, not for the right reasons, it seems to me, because their livestock has been destroyed. They completely overlook the fact that this man has been rescued and restored. And, and he's, they're afraid of the fact that he's sitting there in his right mind, totally changed, and they're not pleased for him. Although I have to say, if somebody was like completely off the scale and then suddenly sitting there in their right mind, I would be a little bit cautious. I'm just saying, you know, they might suddenly go back there. You don't know what's going to happen. And so I can understand that a little bit. But the fact that he's been restored is viewed with a, a large amount of suspicion and fear. 
And if this all were not incredible enough all by itself, there's another, yet another massive twist to the story. Um, it's totally counterintuitive. Jesus decides to appoint the man from the Gerasenes, who's just been healed, to the role of an evangelist. Now, wow, what's that? What are you doing, Jesus? Why would you do that? And actually, if you go back to the beginning of Luke, we have a parable about the sower. And I don't know about you, but I'm thinking that this man represents absolutely the last person I would think would be a seed for a future ministry. His ground in his life is completely rocky. It's granite. Nothing's going to take a foothold there, surely. No seed scattered by Jesus with this man's going to catch, is it? And yet, no. Jesus says... I want for you, the least person in the whole of the Bible, I want you to become an evangelist. I want you to go and tell people about what God has done for you. And after his healing, everyone around him can see the colossal transformation in his life. And in fact, the transformation is so large that he becomes a living sermon just all by himself. Um, you know that bit at the end where he begs to go with Jesus? Jesus says, no, you don't need to come and do Bible college with, uh, with my boys. You just go off and show people your life. When people see the transformation, they will know there is a God. You don't need to teach them anything. That's an incredible transformation, is it not, church? Are you with me so far? What's also really amazing, and I, I preached on this a few years back, about three or four years ago, what's also amazing about this passage is if you trace carefully back through Mark's account of the story, this man goes and does exactly what Jesus says. Because Jesus goes back to the region of the, of the Decapolis, the ten cities, and he does a, a, a bit of a mission there later on in his ministry, and 4,000 people show up to, to hear him preach. Now that is some ministry right there. And that's down to the man who got healed of the demons in the Gerasenes. He went off and showed people his life and he talked to them about what God had done for him and the cumulative effect of it was to create a crowd that came back to hear who was this person that caused this change in this man's life. That is a big result. This story fascinates me. It's freaky. It's incredible, and it's outlandish. And yet, it's right here in our Gospels, in Luke chapter 8. And I just want to tell you the things that Jesus achieves in this man's life. Um, there's, a, there's a whole lot of stuff, actually. If you look carefully what he does, and I'm going to hit the first one first. Uh, on your version notes, this is the section called Seven Things Done for the Man. The first one is that the demons leave him. Uh, the demons, they, they go. That is what calming a spiritual storm needed. It needed for the demonic to be gone and out for good. That's number one. Those demons are gone. Number two, he doesn't need any chains or shackles anymore around his body. In other words, he is now safe and orderly. Uh, he is no longer a danger to others and he's no longer a danger to himself. So he does not need to be changed up, uh, 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 shackled up. Sorry. Um, number three, He's now wearing clothes. That's a massive step up if you want to be in community. Can I just point that out? Yeah? Number four, he is now described as in his right mind, which he definitely wasn't before. And this is one of the most powerful and significant aspects of this healing that Jesus carries out for him. He's now in his right mind, in addition to being dressed. Number five... The begging that goes on, his, on in his life changes. I don't know if you notice this in the text, but the begging that we first see is from the, the spirits begging Jesus, 
using the man's mouth and voice to speak, not to torment them. So the begging comes from the demons using the man to say what they want to say, um, and it's about torment. The second begging comes from the man in his right mind, connected properly with Jesus, begging to be with Jesus. Do you see the difference between the two kinds of begging? One is completely demonic, and one is really healthy. All of us in this room need a healthiness that says, I want to be with you, Jesus. We need to be begging Jesus to, uh, to be with Jesus ourselves in our lives. That's a healthy thing. That's totally different than having a demonic taking control of us. Number six, he is ready to go home, and he's ready to start living again in his community and stop living around the tombs. Since when was it ever healthy to live around a graveyard? I'm sorry, but it's there right in front of us. That's not right. If you ever find yourself living in a, in a graveyard, go and get some counseling. Go and get some help. Sometimes these things are really obvious, and all of us sitting here this morning can see it, but he couldn't. Number seven, and the last thing that Jesus does for him is he's given an appointment and a mission by Jesus to go and do something massive with that massive transformation he's just received himself. Transformed lives, transforming lives. Are you receiving that? It is a truly spectacular transformation in the Gospels. And I would argue that it is the most broken person in the whole Bible that we are dealing with here. And Jesus takes him and sorts him out and puts him on the road to recovery. What a fantastic Jesus we serve. Amen, church. I want to point out three ways in which the uh, person of Jesus achieves this calming of the, of the spiritual storm. Um, these three ways are these. He does it by his authority, number one. Number two, he does it with his compassion. And number three, he does it by bringing hope. Authority, compassion, hope. Jesus has the authority in this situation. Jesus shows the compassion in this situation that's needed. And Jesus brings this man hope. And those three ingredients are a powerful combination to calm a spiritual storm in our lives. Let's look at the first one. Uh, we actually have quite a negative view of authority these days. I think we're suspicious of it. We don't kind of really treat it necessarily with that godly respect. And that's possibly justified from the number of different people who've abused authority or not led properly or broken the integrity that comes with authority. But that's not the kind of authority I'm talking about. I'm talking about being under godly authority from Jesus. The kind of authority he puts us under uh, to help us with our lives. Let me give you an illustration of what this uh, godly authority looks like. It's a bit like trying to get across a glacier um, and being willing to be roped in. And I think there's a picture to show uh, the illustration of that. A glacier will, as it moves down a mountain, often has big gaps opening up uh, in the, uh, the, the ice. Um, and it's very dangerous. People can fall off and go down into the gaps in the ice. Being under godly authority with Jesus is that you are willing to say, do you know what, I'm willing to be roped in here and be connected. And that means that when you fall down a gap, do you know what, you can be pulled out by that connection. Right. You're safe. Right. You're under that authority because you've submitted to that. Here's a false view of being under authority. I don't want that rope. That's a restriction on me. Why do I have to be tied around my middle or through that harness? That's curtailing my freedom. I don't want that. But what does that mean when you hit a crevasse and you fall in? You're a goner. 
So really, how did that serve you by making that defiant stance about not being willing to be under authority? It hasn't served you at all, has it? We only have to look at the difference between what the man was like before and what he was like afterwards to tell the difference between the kinds of authority he was under. Do you get me? And in fact, the extremes of this story is quite helpful because it shows it really, really clearly. We have this thing at BCC where when we're inviting you to baptisms, and that's going to be happening on the 29th of August, by the way, if we, we, we invite you to come to do a, a baptism class, and then we follow up with filming you and, and, and your testimony. Uh, and we say, so what, is, what, was your like, li- what was your life like before you became a Christian? And then what is your life like now since you've become a Christian? Can you even begin to imagine what it was like for the man in the Gerasenes to, to, to be part of a video shoot like that? Like, the extreme would be enormous, wouldn't it? Um, It would be really, really a a dramatic story. I want to just show you something uh, that I've linked you to a little bit. Uh, They're going to show this briefly on the stream so that you get the full picture. So that's going to cover my image just for a moment in just a minute. Um, But it's available to you as a link on your YouVersion notes. And actually, I put it in as a link on YouTube and Facebook. And it's an authority table. Uh, Hopefully, that will be coming up on the live stream and you can see that. And what that shows you is it shows you uh, a a list of different people in a, a spiritual scale with Jesus at the top left and the demonic right down at the bottom left at number eight. And what we've got is we've got the man from the Gerasenes who's at number seven, and he's right down there. And I I wanted to reproduce this for you because I think it's really helpful for those of us uh, on our live streams and in our church who like the analysis and the detail, okay? So this is available. Don't worry about if you don't get it all. And there's a lot of words on here. I I understand that. You can take that off the stream now. That's great. Um, I want to compare... Jesus with the man from the Gerasenes across four aspects. Freedom, temptation, obedience, and sin. Now we know that Jesus was the freest person who ever lived. He just was, completely free. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And Jesus had the Spirit of the Lord upon him, and he was the Son of God. Totally free. Amen? Temptation, Jesus was rarely tempted. Now, there was a very significant time when he was tempted out in the desert by the devil. I think he may have been tempted in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, There may have been other times, but the the Gospels don't relay, relay that many. And I think he was rarely tempted as a person. He had such moral integrity that the devil didn't even dare show his face. Obedience, well, in terms of obedience to the Word, I want to put it to you that Jesus is the Word. He actually is the Word, and he lived it out. He's the definition of the Word. Jesus defines obedience for us, and he then models it completely. Uh, so, and then in, in terms of sin, we know as a theological understanding, and from what the Bible describes, is that Jesus is without sin, and that is what qualifies him to be our great high priest. So, on account of freedom, temptation, obedience, and sin, Jesus gives us an absolute masterclass, does he not, church? And he is the model that we follow. Now, let's go through freedom, temptation, obedience, and sin for this man from the Gerasenes. He is not free. He is possessed multiple times by an enemy. Um, 
temptation, he was continually tempted to a tortuous level. In Mark's account, it says that he cut himself with stones. Um, if, you, if you have ever experienced uh, or been around someone who cuts themselves and it's the most awful, awful thing, that for them is a temptation because they do that to relieve a, an emotional or spiritual anguish that is going on inside. And believe it or not, the physical pain is a relief for them. And so that's a temptation for them to do that because it takes away pain, ironically. It's the most awful situation, and my heart goes out to people who struggle with that. Obedience, this man in the Gerasenes was in sustained and defiant rebellion all the time. And then sin, he was perpetually stuck in sin in a way that was highly destructive to himself and to others. Now, can you see the difference between the two authorities that this story so clearly reveals to us? very clear. It all boils down to this question. In fact, this, this, this whole episode boils down to this question. Do you want to be under the authority of Legion, or do you want to be under the authority of Jesus? And can you see the difference in fruit in the people's lives who are under those different authorities? Now, there's too much to get into the table on the other things, but I'd encourage you to look at that. I've had a go at trying to explain what I think each of the categories means, and it, you can see some of the different things that are on there, but let's take that off and we'll move on. So number one is, Jesus has the authority. Number two is, Jesus has the compassion. Have you noticed in this story that for whatever reason, no one seems able to show compassion to this man other than Jesus? I guess other people were too frightened or too fearful or, you know, but the people, people came and tried to lock him up and put him under shackles. And then towards the end of the story, they're, they're kind of viewing him as, uh, as less than livestock. That's not compassion. That's abusive. That, that's not right. And then Jesus comes along and he treats him with compassion. He, is, he sees the man as worthy of being healed. I want to say to you, uh, to, to you, church, that this man was not a write-off to Jesus. This man was not a write-off to Jesus. And this story says to all of us that even if we don't have the same authority and power as Jesus, and I think we, we actually might, and even if we don't always know what to do, and I think we actually do because we have the Holy Spirit to guide us and help us, then we should all have the same heart of compassion to people no matter how broken or lost or unreachable they seem to be. Compassion is such an accessible quality to us all. And what I mean by that is anybody here, anybody in our live streams, anyone watching this later, knows what it means to be kind. It only takes a small amount of kindness to help. It only takes a small amount of compassion to make a big difference. And I'm going to illustrate that right now with a tiny piece of compassion and kindness that I witnessed on Thursday night. And you're all going to hear about it, and all of you are going to hear about it on the live stream. And I want you to understand that kindness carries. Uh, so on uh, Wednesday morning, really, really early, 1 a.m. in the morning, the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra sent out a number of invites to a dress rehearsal of a opera, of an, an opera, sorry, by a composer called Wagner, and it's part of a great big long piece that he's done called uh, the, the Ring Cycle, and it's the last opera in the Ring Cycle, and it's called Rheingold. And they're doing uh, a dress rehearsal for a proper, you know, like paid performance. Uh, I think it went on last night, and I think there's one tomorrow. 
Uh, so we got these, uh, this email through. It went out to a number of charities around the city. And our food bank manager, Leon, uh, is Leon in today? Where are you, Leon? Are you about? I can't quite see if you're in. Uh, maybe, maybe not. Okay. So uh, Leon got this email, and it said, hey, um, you and your volunteers, would you like to come to this opera dress rehearsal? Uh, and so he responded, and in the end, what happened was, um, we, uh, w- w- there, were f- there were five of us who went. So Leon and his wife, Kirsty, went along, and me and Chloe went along, and also um, Leon's friend, Lloyd, who is blind. I don't know, some of you may know Lloyd here. Uh, he- he's a blind, blind guy. So there were five of us that went along. Okay. Um, now, I don't know if you love opera or not, but just let, I just want to say to you that there are reasons that certain pieces get played a lot, and there are reasons that certain pieces don't get an outing very often. And this piece by Wagner, not the best. Should we just say it was all right, but, you know, it wasn't, you know, it doesn't get played a lot, uh, let's say. And it was long. Oh, my goodness. It was two hours, 37 minutes. And on top of that, it had no interval. I reckon Wagner is a canny chap because I reckon that like, if he'd put an interval in there, we'd all just like gone home because it was so boring. Now, listen, if you want to go and see that tomorrow night, don't take my feedback at all. You just go and make your own minds up. I think it's 12 quid and it's in the symphony hall. You go and have a look. Great musicianship, great performances from the cast, you know, brilliant stuff, but Wagner, oh, we need to take him outside and have a chat with him. That was not a good, not a good opera. It really wasn't. Okay, now that's not the purpose of my story, although it was funny. Um, The purpose of my story is that when we got there, Lloyd was a little bit late. And Chloe and I and Kirsty went and sat in our seats. But do you know what Leon did? Leon waited outside for him. And that's so typical of Leon, isn't it? Those of you who know Leon, he's just kind. He's just got kind. If if, If Leon was a stick of rock, you'd open it down, it would say kind all the way through, wouldn't it? He's just a kind, the kindest bloke. And Leon, if you're watching the live stream, you're kind. Very kind. Now, it's just a tiny thing. It's just a tiny thing to wait for your blind friend so that you can guide your blind friends to his seat. A tiny thing. But that is what I mean by compassion and kindness. And Jesus shows compassion and kindness on a big scale to this man by turning up and, and, healing, and healing him and meeting his need. We need to show compi- compassion in our world. We need to show kindness. You know, there's a, there's a saying that goes around on social media sometimes, um, isn't there? Uh, which is, uh, let me just find it a minute. Uh, where's it gone? Um, yes, be kind because you don't know what battles people are facing. So true, isn't it? Be kind to people because you don't know what battles they're facing. So show kindness, be compassion. It can be tiny, like waiting for your friend at the theatre, or it can be enormous, like doing something massive for somebody. But it makes all the difference in the world. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up, and you guys just go ahead and start playing when you're ready. So number one, Jesus has the authority. Number two, Jesus shows the compassion. And number three, Jesus brings the hope. Jesus brings the hope. One of the um, unexpected and really nice surprises from moving into our house when we first bought our house in Birmingham is that 
out of our back window. You can look across the reservoir. It's a great view sometimes when the, the, the leaves are off the trees. You can see the water. And then beyond that, you can see two towers in the distance. And one is in the waterworks area. And then the further one after that is um, actually in the grounds of my GP surgery. It's really weird. It's just one of those Birmingham weird things. Uh, but these two towers were the inspiration for Tolkien when he wrote his middle book, The Two Towers, from the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Now there's something long that's really worthwhile. You, you should see the film, read the book, but Wagner, maybe not. Okay? The Two Towers was something that Tolkien could see from the other end of town. He was on the other side of the Hagley Road and he was looking towards us. But he was inspired to write his book because he could see those two towers. Now, Tolkien's book, The Lord of the Rings, is actually, he was a Christian, and it's actually got very Christian influence in it. Um, it's got ideas in it that are very Christian in their understanding. It's like the battle against good, uh, of good against evil. It's about taking out an enemy that's doing destructive things in our world. Um, it's about righteousness prevailing and good things winning out in the long run. So it's a very bracing book. It will do you loads of good if you, if you can get yourself through it. Uh, or watch the film, of course. Now, in the, in the story, there is a central character, a hobbit called Frodo. And Frodo is given this ring that belongs to the enemy, and it has loads of horrible power in it. And so what Frodo is tasked with doing is taking this ring into the volcano where the, the enemy forged it and destroying it and knocking out the enemy's power. And he, I'm going to do a big plot spoiler here. He does it. He does actually destroy the ring in the end, okay? But what happens, and this is where my story's going, what happens is, along his journey, Frodo meets an elven queen, like a queen of the elves, and she's called Galadriel, and she gives him a gift, and this gift is a crystal that shines powerful white light, and it's light that pushes back darkness. And she says, Galadriel says to Frodo, there's going to come a time in your journey ahead where all the other lights are going to go out. And so you need this light. You need this light to hold this light up and push back the forces of darkness. And there does indeed come a time where Frodo and his friend Sam find themselves right up against it. And all other lights have gone out. And they get the crystal out and they shine it in the darkness. And it helps them be a very difficult and wicked and evil situation. I want to say to you that this man in the Gerasenes, his light had gone out. His light had really gone out. All the other lights had gone out for this man. Until Jesus stepped ashore. The light of the world stepped ashore for this man. This man met with Jesus and he got restored because light came back into his life. He was no longer in darkness anymore. Yeah, let's give Jesus praise because Jesus can do this kind of stuff. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the light of the world and that you restore people and that you can take us from the most awful situation where we think we're too far gone and you can restore us and you can put light back in our situation. Would you stand with me, please? We're going to worship. We're going to sing a song called Waymaker. And the lyrics in this song are just fantastic. Um, the lyrics say, Waymaker, Miracle Worker, Promise Keeper, light in the darkness. Jesus, you are our light in the darkness and we worship you this morning and we turn to you. We ask for you to come and be light in our lives and in our situations.
And we thank you that you have authority and that you have compassion and that you bring us hope for all those situations that are so dark. And we thank you that you healed this man in the Gerasenes. And we thank you that we can read about it today in your word. There's a couple of ways to respond to today's message, BCC. And uh, after I've given those two responses, we're going to go into a time of ministry here in the room and also a time of ministry in our live stream. Um, The first response is, what authority are you under in your life? One of the beautiful things about this story, strange and amazing though it is, is it shows you so clearly what it's like to be under the wrong authority. And you might be in here in BCC today and you're not sure what authority you're under. You're not sure that you've ever really told Jesus that he's Lord of your life. And I know that there's loads of us in here who've already made that decision and some of us have made it a long time ago. But I'm just going to give an opportunity for you. Perhaps today you're here and you need to recommit your life and put it, put it under Jesus' authority one more time. Or you need to put it back under his authority when perhaps you've taken it away. Or perhaps you want to do that for the first time because you've seen the power of God in this man's life. So would you all just pray with me for a minute? I'm going to lead you in a prayer that will put you back in that right place and bring you into the kingdom of light and out of the kingdom of darkness. Jesus, I want to come under your authority today, right now. I want to put you the top of my spiritual spectrum. I want you right up there as Lord of my life. I am so sorry for the stuff I've done wrong. I'm so sorry for the times that I've not put you Lord and made you first. But I do that right now today. I make you first. I put you in charge of my life because I can see the fruit that's coming if I do. And I know that you're Lord and I want to put you first. Amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer. If you prayed that prayer and perhaps you rededicated your life to Jesus this morning or you decided to become a Jesus follower right now, please come and see me towards the end of the service and my wife and I, my wife Chloe and I will pray with you and we've got some things to give you. And for the rest of us who've decided that Jesus is already the authority in our lives, I want to encourage you that for all of us and myself included, there are those kind of skeletons in the cupboards, you know those bits of our lives that we shut away that we don't want Jesus to see that we're like oh Jesus don't look at that that's not so great well do you know what I want us to get that out in our minds today don't say it round to the people around you just bring it into your heart and into your mind one of the areas in your life where you think do you know what I know that I need the light of Jesus to be shone into that right now I want that to be better I want to be more righteous in that area. I want to deal with that. I've taken communion this morning. I'm right with God. And God, would you step in and would you heal me in this? Would you help me get better at this? So we're going to pray a prayer for that need right now. Jesus, we invite you to shine your light because you're the light of the world. And we thank you that you sit on the mercy seat of heaven and that you don't condemn us. We thank you that you invite us to the communion table to be right with you. And we ask Jesus right now that you would heal that thing. Would you give us the strength and the power and the the, the capacity to walk away from it and not do it again or to do it better, to not let ourselves down, to move forward. In Jesus' name we pray this morning. And I just want to close by encouraging you with one thought. 
This man did these things and he submitted himself to Jesus' authority and Jesus healed him and he went on to have an incredible ministry. And that might be you today. You might feel yourself, that's not me, surely not me. I'm, I'm the least, I couldn't do things like that. Well, Jesus took that tiniest of seeds and a huge ministry came out of it because that man was willing to be under the authority of Jesus. So we're going to go to our live stream hosts and they're going to speak to the guys on the live stream right now. And uh, we're going to just sing a little bit more in here and then we're going to do a little bit of ministry in here. Thanks, Kim. We'll just take us through one more time.